All right, well, everybody, with that being said, I'm excited to get into our message because we are in a series on Moses. If you are here for the first time, today's actually part three of this series. And the good news, if you are a guest or if you've simply been traveling or had something else happening, you can catch up online or on our app. It's all there. But the reason that we're doing a series on Moses is because he is so relatable. Anybody with me so far? Like what we're gonna be doing over this time of the series, we're gonna look at six episodes in his life. And so far we've looked at two of them and we're gonna look at a third one today. And as we do it, I think you've already just in two weeks started to see how much you are in his story, right? Like he got frustrated and got tired of waiting and so he tried something and it didn't work out very well. We all know what that's like. I think we could all say we, we've tried something and it didn't work out so we became very disillusioned and and we had different hopes and expectations. And well, then Moses made some pretty big mistakes. One really big mistake. And I bet every person in here could say, I've got a story of regret, right? And then Moses, unfortunately, got a little confused about who he was and what he was called to do. And so the truth is, he just flat out lost his way for quite a while, a very long while. And so what we saw in part two last week is that Moses, because of all of that, was incredibly reluctant to surrender when God showed up with a really good job offer. and say, I've got something for you, Moses. Moses' response was still thanks, but no thanks. And you think, how can we get to that? But I bet every one of us also has a story of being reluctant to surrender to God to something, right? So uh, look, I, I can tell you an experience from my life. I think the primary experience, uh, if I were to list them, it's definitely in the top three, but it's probably number one as best I can think right now. And that was when God called me to, to come to South Carolina to be a part of this church plant. We were one of the, Kent and I were two of the four founding families that, that came to start this church. I had no problem with surrendering to God to start a church. I had a problem with South Carolina. Come on, can I get an amen, anybody? Somebody with me on that one? Yeah. Anybody from South Carolina and you tried to get out of here and you just can't? So I, I'm from South Carolina for the record. South Carolina, is, it's like a yo-yo thing. Like you think you got away, but then you know, a string pulls you right back in. So I graduated high school and I went to an out-of-state college. I thought that's pretty good. And then after I graduated college, I bought a one-way plane ticket to Eastern Europe. I thought that's pretty good. I met and married an East European who had no guarantee of ever getting into this country. I thought I'm pretty good. Look where I am. You know, I, I told you earlier in the series, I'd always planned to be a, a surgeon. I wanted to be wealthy and I wanted people to think I was smart. And uh, so that was the goal. And well, when God called me to be a pastor, I, I said, okay, God, I'll surrender to that. And I was willing to surrender to that. But then when God says, but I want you to do that in South Carolina, I'm like, we got to talk. So we, we eventually agreed we'll be a part of this church plant team. But my first thought was, okay, God, Charleston. If we're going to do South Carolina, it's got to be Charleston. I mean, come on, they have chocolatiers. They have great restaurants. Did I say chocolatiers? Some of the best in our country. Uh, they have the Spoleto Festival. I'm a musician. I mean, like everything. So God, Charleston, I'll do Charleston if you want, but I'm not going to do that little spot in the middle of the state that nobody wants to be in that is hot and sandy and humid. And I say hot and humid. Did we get those? Like, seriously, you can see how it works out to negotiate with God, can't you? For the record, I do intend to stay here, so relax. Or at least I'm gonna finish my Moses series, I'll promise you that much. I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding, not going anywhere. But let me ask you, where are you struggling to surrender to something God is asking of you? Maybe it's a dating relationship, and uh, you know this person that you're with is not the person God has for you. 
They're just the person you want for you. You know what I'm saying? Maybe God is asking you to make a serious change to your family budget so you can actually spend more time with your family. Maybe God is telling you to call up that person you had a falling out with and you're not willing to do it, right? The truth is sometimes uh, we're, we're gone kicking and screaming. Other times we're just kicking and screaming and we won't go no matter what God says, which again makes us a whole lot like Moses. Now here's the truth though. Every single one of us would know and agree. When we surrender to God, life is always better on the other side. Come on, amen, anybody? Then why do we struggle so much to surrender? Why don't we just go, oh, even I don't want it. I know it'll be better. Let me go do it with a smile on my face. But we don't. And so what I think we're gonna see today in Moses' story, I think he's gonna help us once again to discover one of, if not the main reason that we struggle to surrender to God. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter three, and we're gonna jump in today in verse 10. We're actually gonna pick up where we left Moses last week. And so last week we discovered God came to him and he said, come Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God's response was, but I will be with you. And as we saw last week, look, Moses has excuses. And the truth is though, as far as excuses go, he's got reasonably good ones, right? I mean, he starts with, hey, God, I've already tried that. Were you not paying attention when I tried that and failed? What makes you think that I'm the one person on planet earth that should try it a second time? I don't think so. Uh, God, did you notice I committed murder? So if I go back there, I'm either going to end up in prison or dead. A person who is incarcerated or dead cannot set your people free. Like I would be the most contained one of them. That won't work, God. Have you not noticed? Oh, and by the way, God, did you notice the people you're asking me to lead have already rejected me once? They're not going to follow me. Weren't you paying attention to that, God? Oh, oh, and Pharaoh, you remember God, Pharaoh hates me. I disowned him and his entire family, even though they fed me for my whole life and, and gave me my college tuition and everything. And I've said, thanks, but no thanks. And God, if you didn't figure it out, I can't give a motivational speech to save my life. And isn't that what leaders have to do? So who am I? He honestly had a really good reason to ask, who am I? He had many reasons to be disqualified for the job and really not one reason that was qualifying him. But God's answer was that it wasn't about what qualified Moses because his answer was, I will be with you. And what that phrase actually means in the Old Testament is I'm going to demonstrate my power through you. It's not just I'll be with you like a shadow, I'll follow you, but it is like I am going to work through you. Whatever you're going to do, you're really just an instrument in my hand. I'm gonna be the one doing it. So that's who you are. You, Moses, are an instrument that I'm going to use. But let's back up and see why God was even talking to Moses. Back up to verse seven, if you're following along. So God came to him and he said, I have surely seen the affliction. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were catch what God was saying there. I see my people. I hear my people. I love my people. I will deliver my people. Do you notice how much God was talking about him? These are my people. I heard the cry, not you, Moses. I saw their distress, not you, Moses. This is my idea, not yours, Moses. This is my responsibility, not yours, Moses. They're my people. I'm gonna set them free. You, Moses, 
You're just an instrument in my hand. That's it. It's not about you. So your excuses may be good, but they don't matter because it's not about you. And this is the lesson Moses would have to learn that you and I are going to learn today, I hope. It's not about you. It was not about Moses and it's not about you and me. Somehow we all know the star of the story is God, right? Moses didn't seem to catch that. Moses still thought it was all about him. Matter of fact, if you remember, we learned in part one, Moses says, but surely they will discover I am the one to set them free. Moses has thought all along and still to this moment, it's all about him. He's gonna be the amazing one. But God's answer to him, very simply, I'm gonna work through you. It's not about you. You are an instrument in my hand. I want you to think about a doctor who uses a scalpel or a stethoscope, an instrument. A doctor needs a scalpel if they're doing surgery. I mean, a butter knife, not exactly what you want them operating on you with, right? You know, and their finger, well, that's not really gonna like cut through the skin. A scalpel is a very important instrument for them to have. But no one has ever looked at a scalpel laying on a table and says, oh, I hope you do a great job in my surgery today because it is just an instrument in the hand of the doctor. If you've been around Grace Life any period of time, you already know I, I went to college uh, in music and I was a piano player. Piano is my, my main instrument. And so the, when I was in college, there were some pianos that were better than others. And the truth is that exists all over the world today. Some of you maybe have heard of a Steinway. Most people would consider a Steinway to be one of the best pianos that you could get in all of the world. And so in a music school, every practice room for every instrument has to have a piano in it. Everybody has to learn to play a piano, but everybody else does not get a good piano. All of the practice rooms are filled with these dinky little crappy sounding little pianos that they're really not gonna do much on. But piano majors like me, we had a whole nother hallway to ourselves. In our practice rooms, every single one of them had a grand piano that was a Steinway. And the, the rooms were always locked and only the piano majors actually had a key to them. Anybody else that got into the rooms with Steinways were in trouble. Now here's the reason I'm telling you that. Because the Steinways were special and they, they make a different sound and they make a better sound in our opinion and they're made better and they go, they have much better quality. But if we were to take a Steinway piano and sit it on this stage right here today, the problem with it is it would still be a mere piece of furniture. You see, a Steinway by itself does nothing. It could be the best piano that we could ever get or want and it can do nothing on its own. And here's what we need to understand. A great instrument isn't great until played by a master. And even a flawed instrument becomes great when played by a master. Did y'all get that? Did y'all connect those dots for me? You see, a great instrument isn't great until played by a master. No one would ever walk in here with the Steinway sitting on this stage and go, wow, listen to that piano. You might say, wow, look at that piano. But you're not gonna say, listen to that piano. You might eventually say, listen to him or her play. A great instrument isn't great until played by the master. And even a flawed instrument becomes great when played by the master. And this is what Moses has to figure out and you and I get to learn today. A life of great purpose is not about you. A life of great purpose simply is not and never will be about you. And think about this. If you've ever been to church, if you are a Christian, 
You would probably tell somebody many times, look, my life goal, all I ever want to do is get to heaven and hear, say it with me, well done, good and faithful. Nowhere in that scripture does it ever say, well done, good and faithful hero. God's not going to bow down to you when you show up. That's not the goal. The goal is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I hate to tell you, but the star of the story is never the servant. Think about that. We are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So what we have to do is be a surrendered servant. And this is what God is after in Moses today. Moses' problem, it's all about him. Everything is about him. He thought it was about his ability, which he doubted. He thought it was about his past failure, which was making him afraid to even try something again. He thought it was about expectations that had not been met. So he didn't think they'd be met again. But catch this. The reason it's not all about you is because it can't be. You see, if it's all about you, when the going gets tough, you're likely to quit. It's what Moses did. Moses tried it the first time. Remember, that was part one. Hey, I think I'm going to go out and deliver my people today. I'm going to show them how amazing I am. But it didn't work. One thing didn't work. And for the next 40 years, he's hiding, hoping no one ever finds him. You see, when the going gets tough, and let me promise you, the going will get tough. If it's all about you, you're probably going to have the same response that Moses had. And so in order for Moses to actually succeed this time around and to actually set his people free, he needed to know it's not about you because Moses, something is going to stand in your way every step of the way. You are going to be resisted every single moment. Think about it yourself. Whatever it is you believe you're supposed to step out and do, if someone actually looked at you and said, everything you try, you will be resisted. Are you going to be encouraged by that? God tells him, go tell Pharaoh, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh is going to look at him and laugh. Pharaoh is eventually going to stop saying no to him and just finally say, don't ever come back again. He's going to be resisted by Pharaoh every step of the way. And when they are finally set free after the 10 plagues and the whole situation, Pharaoh is going to chase him down. Pharaoh is against him. God says, go and show my power. So Moses goes and shows his power. And the magicians of Egypt counterfeit some of it. They couldn't do it all because God is greater, but they were able to counterfeit some of it, which tells us a little bit about demonic forces, doesn't it? So we've not only got the king of the highest empire on the earth standing against Moses, we've now got the devil himself showing up. Demonic forces are standing against Moses. And the people that he's supposed to lead, they're against Moses. He leads them out and they go, we're hungry, we're thirsty. Why didn't you leave us there? At least we had good food as we hurt in the sun all day making bricks and being slaves. We were well-fed slaves. We could have just died there. And then by the way, did we ever mention that the job offer God gave him was supposed to last a couple of months at most? And because of the whiny people who refused to do anything God wanted or what Moses said and blamed Moses for everything they got wrong, it ended up lasting 40 years. Well, let me tell you something. When the king of the greatest empire takes his entire army to chase you down, demons are coming after you, the people you are leading don't want to follow you, and it feels like God's not even with you anymore. If this is about you, you quit. And that's what we have to realize. We want a life of great purpose, and if we want a life of great purpose, it can't be about us because we will have nothing to keep us going when the going gets tough, and the going will get tough. So... <laughs> it's not about us. Well, then who's it about? Well, God, of course. 
I mean, come on, we're in church. That's always the right answer, isn't it? But we need to understand something here. You and I can answer that a lot easier than Moses could because we need to step back and put ourselves in Moses's understanding. See, remember Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? He doesn't know what we know about God. He doesn't understand what we understand about God. We know a lot about God's nature and God's character. He doesn't know that. Matter of fact, let's, let's just have a real quick history lesson on Moses's perspective. Moses existed at a time when virtually every nation on the earth was a polytheistic nation. That means they had many gods and they had a God for every different thing. They had a God of fertility. When they needed a baby, they did a certain dance or a certain sacrifice or a certain worship practice. They had a God of rain and a God of the harvest and they always had different things to do to get these different gods to act in their lives. So there were many gods and he was raised in an Egyptian home. The Egyptians believed in multiple gods, but on top of all that, the Egyptians believed their king was actually a god. Y'all wanna talk about having a tough daddy complex? I mean, look, we all know what it's like when our dad thinks he knows everything. Come on, somebody. What, what, what do you do when your dad is God? Or at least he thinks he's God, right? So Moses is raised in a world where everybody believes in many gods and he's told there are many gods. He knows that he's part of the people out there somewhere, but no one has ever given him a class on their gods. He's not even sure what that is. His own uh, father, stepfather, whatever you wanna call him, is claiming to be a god. And so Moses is struggling a little bit. What, who is this voice out of this burning bush? What do you want me to do and, and who are you? The truth is Moses knew very little about the God speaking to him. And so Moses asked a question that we did not see last week. I wanna to show to you because what's well, actually an important question. So Moses said to God, well, let's pretend I'm gonna do what you say. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What am I gonna say to them? I mean, that's a fair question. Who are you? I mean, we've been talking a little while. Appreciate the job description. I need to know who I'm working for because the truth is anybody can walk up to someone and go, hey, your God told me to tell you. But that's not exactly gonna carry a whole lot of weight if I can't even tell them who you are. I've got to help them understand I've been with you and they've got to know you. And God responds to Moses in one of the coolest insights that he ever gave to all of human history. God said to Moses, I am. I am who I am. Yes, our God identified himself as a verb tense. Laugh if you want, but it's incredibly meaningful. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here's what that means, because in revealing himself by a verb tense, I am actually means this. God is self-existent. He is. He is self-existent. I am. I don't depend on anything else for my existence. No one or no thing in all of creation can say that except our God. Do you understand that? There is one being in all of creation that can say, I am. Everything else has to say, well, I was and I am no more, or I will be someday, or I am becoming, or I was made into, or I am made like. I was created, I was born, I currently live, I will die. No one simply gets to say, I am, except our God. 
And in, his, in saying so, he also was saying that everything else depends upon me for existence because I'm the only one that is I am. Everything else, not so much. And then this is the third thing we need to catch God was saying. And this really applies to you and me today. When God says, I am, not I was or I will be, but simply I am. My past is my present. My present is my future. My future is me. I am. Here's what he was saying. I'm not in the process of becoming. I'm not in the process of developing. I'm not in the process of changing. I'm in no process because I am. I am yesterday, I am today, I am tomorrow. That's why scripture tells us when he says, look, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason that matters to you and me, and it's so important, is because what we're hearing a lot in our world today, we have a very fluid moral standard. Somebody understand what I'm talking about? Everywhere around us, it's constantly changing. It probably changed even over the weekend again. There is a constant debate over what is right or wrong. And Christians and sometimes even preachers are saying, well, you know, the Bible is a little outdated, and if God were writing it today, he would. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, since when is the I am going to become a I will be just because it's 2022? Our God hasn't changed, and so anytime you are faced with a current moral question about what is right or wrong, what God has said still is, because God, I am, and that's enough. And this is the first and central identity of God that he's revealing to Moses. And in case you wonder, well, Jimmy, we don't say I am all the time. Well, the verb I am, when we get the Hebrew letters, we get Y-H-W-H, and then we add the vowels that we believe are from the word Adonai, and, and we come up with the name Yahweh. So at this point, God begins to reveal himself with his name, Yahweh. And so people can now say, I know the name of my God. It's not Pharaoh. It's not Ra. It's not whatever else. My God is Yahweh. And so God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. And I've told you before here at Grace Life, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, it is a replacement for Yahweh. That's what that means. So say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, I got a name. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, even the ones past 2022. He has not changed. You see, what God is doing is he's putting his name Yahweh with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We talked about God established a people upon the earth. They were the Israelites, and he started with Abraham. I'm going to have a people. Abraham, you're going to be the father of them. And so the truth is the people Moses is going to lead, they don't know anything about God. All they know is we believe in a God that our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had an encounter with. But we've been here in Egypt as a slave for 400 years. We, we don't really know much about him. But now in a world with many gods, the one true God has shown up. He's given himself a name and he's about to demonstrate that he is the highest God on the earth. How do you do that? Well, in a battle of the gods, the one with the most power wins. That's what we're about to see. So Moses has gone back to Egypt, everybody. He's gone to his people. He showed them everything that God told them to show them. They agreed. And so now he's teamed up with his brother who's gonna do the talking for him. By the way, I think that'd be really cool. If I ever get a chance to get like a second life, I want one where I just kind of walk around and throw a stick down and turn into a snake and make Kent do all the talking. I just think that'd be cool. 
They look and go, what did that mean? I just go, talk to him like Phineas and Ferb long before. So now he's going to Pharaoh. I'm glad somebody got that. Now he's going to Pharaoh and will demonstrate to him also that Yahweh is God most high. So afterward, here we go. We're going to jump to chapter five and we're going to get two verses as God begins to reveal himself to Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to, and said to Pharaoh, thus says, now we read this in our context. We don't catch what Moses actually said here. He says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says for you to let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, excuse me? Yahweh? Who, who's Yahweh? I've never heard of that. What kind of God is Yahweh? I can't even say Yahweh. And by the way, Hebrew is a hard language to pronounce. And I promise you, if we could go back in time, we'd all be laughing at Pharaoh trying to get a out. There's a guy, wait, I mean, anyway, I can't do Hebrew myself, but it would be a challenge. It'd be funny. And you can just imagine at this moment, Pharaoh is absolutely mocking this situation because he's sitting on a throne thinking he himself is a God. And so he said, excuse me, who are you? I haven't seen you in a real long time. Like 40 years ago, I heard my dad was looking for you. What? And you're trying to tell me now that Yahweh, hey, Bob, you ever heard of Yahweh? Anybody here? Hey, anybody heard of Yahweh? I mean, that's what he's doing. Yahweh? I don't know who this Yahweh is that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I ain't gonna do it. Nope, not gonna happen. You see, here's what's going on that we miss. The idea that Moses would show up and go to someone who thinks they're God and say, hey, I know you think you're God, but I'm here to represent another God you never heard of, and he wants you to obey him. And this is the second coolest thing that gets revealed about God's nature in this incident. Incident? incident? Yes. He says, say to Pharaoh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, we read that looking back in history. He could have said, said to Pharaoh, Yahweh, the God most high. That might've got Pharaoh's attention. He could have said, say to Pharaoh, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. That may have gotten Pharaoh's attention. But he said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, Yahweh, the God of the lowest people upon the earth right now. That's who I am. I am the God of the slaves. I am the God of the people you've conquered. My name is Yahweh, and I want you to let them go. Think about that. God could have identified himself by any other of his traits, like his power, like his greatness, like the fact that he's creator, but he chooses to identify himself not by his greatness, but with the people he loves. God is still doing that today. God still comes to you and says, you are my son. Teresa, you are my daughter. God chooses to identify with his people. He will let his nature speak for itself. He doesn't need to defend himself with fancy words in front of him. So God was very happy to show up and say, my name is Yahweh. Don't care if you never heard of me. And yes, I identify with those people that I've redeemed, that I'm going to rescue, that I love, that I created. They're my people, 
And if you don't let them go, you're about to see what it's like to not be one of them. That's powerful. So, how does this help us today? Well, now we know two very important things. Number one, it is not about us, <laughs> and it is about God. Y'all with me? It's not about us, it is about God, so now we must ask ourselves, where do you struggle to surrender to what God asks or wants? Where do you struggle to surrender? And see, for you, it might be the same as Moses. He was struggling with calling. God was calling him to do something that would change the course of human history, but Moses was struggling to surrender to that. I'll tell you the truth, when I preach a message like this, a lot of people begin to feel something and they come to me in the lobby and ask about how to go to seminary. A lot of people think suddenly, in order to respond to God's calling, that they've all got to become pastors. And that might be true for a couple of you here today, but I do need you to know something. We're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be pastors. The truth is, the current statistics say that less than 40% of our world will ever even enter the doors of a church. If we're all pastors, the rest of the world's in trouble. Now you need to be who you are, called to where you go to work every day, called to be the person you are, called to represent Jesus where you are. But the truth is maybe the calling isn't the struggle. There are people here who would say, Jimmy, I don't have that problem. If God called me to South Carolina, I'd go. If God called me there, I'd go. If God called me to change my career, I'd do it, I've done it. Many of us would say calling is not my problem. I'd say, okay, well maybe your problem is something different. Maybe your problem is about identity. Are you willing to surrender your identity and connect it to God? Teenagers, can I particularly ask you? In a world that is so against a moral right and wrong, and definitely an idea of God that came up with it, do you struggle to identify with him in school? If you do, it's very understandable. Be expected to be honest. But I just want to remind you, God's willing to identify with us. Can't we identify with him? Not just teenagers. There are some of us that are afraid to pray at work at our desk because we don't want the boss to see us. There are some of us that would be afraid to take our Bible to work. If we do, we hide it in the drawer of our desk. There are some of us, it's not just teenagers. Maybe you don't struggle with your identity. Maybe you struggle with faith. Truth is, maybe you've had prayers that weren't answered the way that you wanted them to be answered before, and so now you struggle to trust God. And so when God says, I need you to do this, you simply can't surrender because you don't trust God in the process. Maybe you struggle to surrender for obedience. Maybe you know exactly what God wants, but this is not what you want. Look, we've all had an encounter with this, if not a hundred of them, where it's like, Seriously, God, I can't, no, I don't like that, God. Can I rewrite this? I would take, we've all done that. But we all have to surrender to obedience. Maybe God's telling you to forgive someone. <laughs> Maybe God's asking you to make a personal change that could actually save your marriage. Maybe God's asking you to make a moral lifestyle change. Maybe God's asking you to surrender your opinion to match God's word. You see, any time that we are struggling to surrender, it's because we're making it all about us. I hope y'all have connected those dots today. We're making it all about us. It's, but, but what about my reputation, God? But what about my 
my chance of success, God. It, it, can you guarantee success? Because I really don't want to sign up for failure, God. God, what about the difficulties that I'm going to face? I, I don't know. Can you, can you lay them out and show me the way through them before I even try? We make it all about us. It's about our opinions, our rights, and our control. The truth is, the best image I can give you of what God is asking of us is the image of an army in war. You see, at some point in every war, an army figures out they're not equally matched. One is great and greater. So the other has to choose to admit, you are great, I surrender. That's what, that's what God is asking of us. Now the truth is virtually every war that's ever been fought always ends up with an unconditional surrender because people tend to not surrender until they've got no fight in them left. And when they have no fight in them left, they have no terms. See, the problem with an unconditional surrender is that someone else is now gonna set the terms of your new life. And that's what God is asking for you today. God wants to set the terms for your new life. He's got a great life planned. He's got something amazing that he wants to do through you. But it's gonna require surrender, even unconditional surrender. I live in Columbia, South Carolina. And glad to do it now. That's unconditional surrender. You see, the problem is when we don't surrender, something is missing. What God has planned isn't being done. You are missing out on seeing his power demonstrated through your life. You're wondering what's the point? And your life is missing out on the significance and the favor of God that you've been dreaming of. All because you're trying to live your best life your way and make it all about you. The life you want is on the other side of surrender. So let's finish today by taking a moment. Let's take a moment and actually answer the question, what is God asking you to surrender where you struggle? Where do you struggle to surrender to God? Some of you, you've known the answer the whole time I've been preaching. The Holy Spirit has been bothering you through every moment of this. Some of you already know the answer. But if you don't know the answer, take a moment. It'll be the first thing that comes to mind, I promise you. What is God asking that you struggle to surrender? And let me ask you, what if? What if you actually surrendered? What if you actually made your life more about God than about you? What if you actually said, you know what, God? Since the greatness of any instrument is not gonna be seen until the master plays it, I'll go, I'll do, I'll change, I surrender. At this point, I usually pray and I'm gonna do that in a moment. And while I'm praying, many of us are gathering our belongings and we're getting ready to be the first in the kids line first to refill our coffee. Today, I'm gonna to ask you to, to stay focused. If you noticed earlier, we sang a song called We Re-Surrender. Because even if you surrendered once five years ago, you probably need to readjust that. So today, we're gonna to actually take a moment and respond to God. Worship team is gonna come out and we're gonna just take a moment 
And I wanna ask you to actually think about those words. Which ones do you struggle to actually do? Which ones do you struggle to sing at the top of your voice, knowing that this is what God wants for us? So if we could just stay engaged after I pray, the worship team is gonna lead us. And let's allow this song to be a response time for us. Let me pray. God, we thank you today, first and foremost, that you are a God who is willing to identify with us. You love us so much that you created us for purpose and you love us so much that when we lost our way, you saved us. God, we know that you have great things planned for all of humanity, for the earth, and for each of us individually. So today, God, we ask you, help us to surrender. Help us to lay down whatever we have made great in our eyes that we think is more valuable than a life surrendered to you. We, we know it's a lie, and we ask you to help us. Help us lay it down. If you'll just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. The truth is the ultimate act of surrender is the one that Jesus did on the cross when he chose to lay down his life to endure the worst punishment and death that humanity had ever come up with so that you and I could be forgiven, you and I could be right with God, and you and I could have eternal life. And that leads you and me to the greatest act of surrender that we can do. And that is to say, Jesus, thank you that you died for me, so now I will live for you. If you've never made that exchange, I wanna help you do that wherever you are, would you simply say something like this to yourself and to God? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so today, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my prayer here today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom as I surrender to you. Amen. Everybody help me celebrate with them and stand to your